0: For the lesson today, let's go ahead and read from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Today I'm going to begin a new series, like a mini-series within our series on yearly, you know, annual theme-based series on fellowship. We have been focusing on fellowship, <clears throat> fellowship, which is basically uh, the life that we share together as fellow children of God, who is our mutual Father. Uh, we're Christ's very family; we're His own body. to the metaphors that we've looked at at some length over past weeks. And those metaphors suggest uh, really robust bonds of, of solidarity, of mutual caring, and of selfless love. But if these bonds are weakened, or worse yet, if they are broken, what then becomes of our fellowship? How can we be said to have a life together in Christ if the very bonds that bind us together are are you know, attenuated, or even uh, snapped in two. So to take seriously what the Bible says about fellowship, we need to take a deep, honest look at some of the, the wedges that can drive us apart and keep us apart. And one of these wedges would be our offenses against one another, our sins against one another, when we let each other down, or slight one another, or neglect, or forsake one another, and particularly the way we think about our offenses from both sides, whether I am the offended or the offender. How do I conceptualize that? How do I respond to that? And let me just say at the outset that a a, a coexistence, uh, you know, among us together that's completely free of offense is not a viable option. I think we should just dismiss that right now. That's a pipe dream. Um, that's not for real people in the real world. Uh, we spend 10 minutes together and somebody's gonna be, you know, got their feelings hurt or has a different perspective that's a potential wedge or something, right? That's just real, real life. And we, we might as well just go ahead and get that out there. Um, our fellowship after all is um, a fellowship of sinners. Right? That, that's what we are we're in fellowship with each other through Christ, but we are a fellowship of sinners. Um, And so that's going to be our new series. This is the series title. And then we're going to have several lessons, Lord willing, um, that address uh, topics that are related. So basically, what we're going to be talking about is how do we deal with conflict in the kingdom of heaven? What does the kingdom say? What do the ethics of the kingdom say about how we should think about conflict and responding to that and resolving that? What do we do with it? How do we think about who's at fault and the offender and the offended? All of those kinds of things are what we're going to be talking about as we talk about this fellowship of offenders, of sinners. Christ did not come for the righteous, as he put it, but for sinners. Um, It's a good thing because he wouldn't have found anybody, right? And after we come to him for uh, redemption, we still sin. Our sins carry the potential for conflict. For the destruction of fellowship. So, if we're gonna foster and maintain fellowship, then we'll need to know something about how to address sin and the conflict that it can leave in its wake. Now, we're not only called a family, we're not only called a body, but we are also called a kingdom, right? And Daniel talked about this at some length in his study on the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew talks over and over again about the kingdom of heaven, not least in the Sermon on the Mount, um, the theme of which really is citizenship or behavior or ethics in, in Christ's kingdom. It's interesting to, me, interesting to me that in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Christ's most salient statement on what it means to be in the kingdom, that in that sermon, we find several paragraphs. A large chunk of the sermon is all about dealing with conflict, interpersonal problems, strife, And so over the next few weeks, we'll use some of these paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount to discuss conflict, how to prevent it, how to resolve it, how to reconcile after it. And these principles that we're going to examine, though we'll be looking at them first in the context of person-to-person interactions, will also be applicable, we will see in subsequent weeks, um, to larger-scale interactions between whole people groups, Um, conflict and resolution between people groups. Not just me and you, but us and them, quote unquote. And including the relationship of the church to the wider community or culture that it exists in. So today we're going to begin with a paragraph that Greg just read for us. This is Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Um, as we address kingdom reconciliation, this statement, be reconciled, which is a, you know imperative, a command, comes straight out of this paragraph, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And what we have to come to see as Christ's people is that in his kingdom, reconciliation matters. He says, be reconciled to your brother. Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. Reconciliation matters in the kingdom of heaven. May not matter on earth. There's plenty of people happy to just keep on, you know, spiraling down in that spiral of vengeance, right? Revenge, uh, whether it's countries fighting countries in pitched battle, or people, you know, giving each other the cold shoulder and a 20-year-long grudge, sometimes in churches. It's the spiral of vengeance, and it's as old as the hills. Uh, Why would it work now? (laughs) It never has, right? If we're going to avoid that, and I think we are called to avoid that, We've got to have a different way of looking at conflict, and it's the way that comes from the kingdom of heaven. So let me uh, ask, uh, I don't know, three questions this morning about this. Um, first of all, let's talk about the importance of the matter. How important is reconciliation? How important is it? Well, from all implications, we can scarcely overstate its importance. I don't know how to you know, quantify it, but I, I, I can't imagine an overstatement of it. It's that important. After telling his disciples in the preceding paragraph, the one immediately preceding, the one we're going to sort of look at today in some ways, this is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. You may remember this. Jesus says that his disciples' righteousness must rise above that of the religious leaders around them, the scribes and the Pharisees. And the rest of chapter 5, the entire rest of chapter 5, this is a big chunk of text, consists of six examples that contrast conventional religious righteousness, with kingdom righteousness. It's the famous formula, you have heard that it was said, or you have heard that it was said of old, but I say unto you, it's something else. In other words, it's about fulfilling the law, but the custodians of the law, who fancied themselves the, the you know, sort of uh, arbiters of its meaning, and the ones who truly applied it in the correct way, they, they're off on some things. And Jesus says, no, the fulfillment comes with me, we're not getting rid of the law. Not one jot or tittle of it's going away. We're just going to tell you a kind of higher meaning of it, a fuller meaning, a deeper meaning. And so he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if you want kingdom righteousness. And um, all six of these examples that are given to illustrate that point in the rest of chapter five, including our example we'll look at in the paragraph Greg read, address on some level the problem of conflict. Isn't that interesting? Every one of them. Conflict between individuals. It's almost like righteousness before God can't be disentangled from righteousness vis-a-vis other people. Kind of like the great commandment. What's the great command? What is the great command? Love God. Oh, there's a corollary love your neighbor. If we, how can we say we love God if we don't love our neighbor, you know, our the person we haven't seen. We have seen, if we, we 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 haven't seen God, you know, what 1 John says. I botched that, but all that just it's just 101 in, in scripture. We we manifest our love for God by our behavior with each other. They're not two different things. It's almost they're almost like just two sides of the same coin. And so righteousness isn't just about worship in a building or feeling pious, or saying pious things, or ascribing to the right doctrines between you and God. It's about how we relate to people, especially, I would argue, biblically speaking, New Testament speaking, especially the people of the household of God, the kingdom. So, righteousness before God largely plays out in the arena of relationships with other people. Moreover, the very first example in this sequence of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you in chapter 5, which is our text for today, concludes with a call to reconciliation. Look at it here in Matthew 5, verse 24. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift at the altar. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Like, this is really important. That's the answer to the first conflict mentioned here in this paragraph, which is the first example of how our kingdom righteousness must go beyond the righteousness of the religious leaders of their day. And notice something that to us might be counterintuitive. He says that reconciling with other people actually takes precedence over presenting a sacrifice to God. Isn't that what he says? Which in their terms would have been worship. Do you think of it that way? That you reconciling with somebody from whom you're estranged, a friend, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, a spouse, a child, a parent, a co-worker. Do you see that as taking precedence over getting all dressed up and clean and coming to the church building? Kind of sounds fairly equivalent. And I want you to think about how they would probably have heard this. So we're going to read 23 and 24 now, Matthew 5, 23, 24. I want you to picture, he's probably speaking this in Galilee, from all indications, this is happening in Galilee. He's not in Jerusalem. And so imagine these people in Galilee, you know, up north, 80 miles or something like that from the temple in Jerusalem, probably almost a week's travel. And he says to them, so let me give you an example about how important this is. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, presumably the one in Jerusalem temple, I don't know what other one it's going to be. If you're offering, you've you've traveled down there in this pilgrimage feast, you're going to give your, you know, your, your, sacrifice there and you're getting ready to do that. And then you remember you've left Galilee, you've traveled a week and you get there and you go, oh, you know what? Me and Bud, man, we're not like we ought to be. What does he say? Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then coming off your get. Think of that. We've traveled a week, Jesus. It, a whole lot of things, schedules had to be cleared, money had to be saved, camping out on the side of the road or in the inn or whatever. This has been kind of a hassle. I don't know if they had all the baby gear and stuff we have. They don't because we didn't have it in the 80s. I mean, ours was like caveman equipment compared to y'all's now. It's <laughs> transformer things, you know, but so, but they had a lot. It's logistics. It's still They'd have had a minivan if they could have got one, you know, and, 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 and he's going to go, oh, yeah, there, there's this prior commitment. At least it ought to be. So I'm going to travel back to Galilee. Then I'm going to travel back again. That's what we're talking about here. Probably. I mean, I'm thinking of how they would have heard this. Jesus cares a lot that damaged relationships don't stay damaged in his kingdom. Look what he says in Matthew 18, a few chapters later. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't just let it fester. Go tell it between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. He wants us to regain that familial relationship, that fraternal fraternal bond that should be so much a part of his family and his kingdom. After all, we are his family. A few weeks ago, we talked about this. Jesus, when he's told, hey, your mother and your brothers want to see you, they're outside, they're, you know, they kind of should take precedence. He he reaches, you know, stretches his hand over his disciples and says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He doesn't want his family damaged. So how important is it? It's as important as you can imagine it. There's nothing more important, arguably. Secondly, let's talk about the heart of the matter. When we talk about reconciliation, at its core, what are we talking about? What does it emanate from? Or not emanate from, as the case may be. As we said, our paragraph for this morning, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, is one of six examples Jesus gives of, quote, fulfilling the law. I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And to show his listeners a righteousness that was higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, one that goes beyond outward concern for visible compliance with quantifiable statutes to an inner realm of motive, attitude, a disposition that that seeks not merely to cover one's bases by checking off a few theological boxes, but longs in its heart to grasp these underlying principles of God's kingdom, His rule that permeate everything from your heart out because your heart's been transformed. That's different. That's a deeper or, if you like, higher righteousness. And that's what he says here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in verse 20, which is sort of the the heading for the rest of the chapter with all these, these six examples, these contrasts of you've heard this, but I tell you it's this. He says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, for instance, the problem of dishonesty. Matthew 5, through 37, that taking oaths, swearing, that sort of thing. He says, isn't it? It isn't ultimately solved by focusing on the outward object that one swears an oath upon, right? It, it ultimately has to do with the honesty that is inside you, Jesus says. It's not this outward thing that you, oh, my oath is attached to that. Oh, okay, he must not be lying. No, no, it's about what's inside you. It's about honesty or not. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes. Because <laughs> if it's already inside you to be honest, you're not going to need all that. The problem of divorce. Down in chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. He says it runs deeper than merely the superficial issue of observing the right legal procedures, You know, getting the certificate of divorce that he refers to. It's that one's heart, the real issue is that one's heart cares so little about the marriage. The bond that God has joined together and man should not put asunder and cares so little about what becomes of the other person in the wake of the marriage's destruction. That person's going to be probably going to be committing adultery. And you're, somebody else is going to commit adultery. You don't care? I got their certificate of divorce. I'm good. See, it's about conflict. It's about love and the lack thereof. It's about caring about other people. It's about our heart. And the problem of adultery, chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, another paragraph in the, the six examples. The problem of adultery doesn't start with the outward act of committing it physically. It begins with the lust in ones, anybody remember? Heart. Heart. This is all about heart and kind of getting below the exteriority of things to the, to the inner, inner part of people. Of us. Our paragraph, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, is ostensibly about murder. Here it is. Matthew 5:21. you've heard that it was said to those of old. He's now going to illustrate how, what the higher righteousness looks like. You've heard that, you know, in, in this tradition, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. And what he's doing here is uh, quoting the sixth, I think it's the sixth command in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments, and then he's also sort of paraphrasing the old testament law on capital punishment both of those together here that's what you've heard it say those are technically true some of the you have heards are actually a quotation or part thereof some are just mongrelizations downright wrong others are like the quotation put in a wrong context but it's always a contrast between the take that they have on it the religious leaders and Jesus giving them the fulfillment the higher view the truer view the consummate view the more interior dynamics that are associated with kingdom living. This is about murder. You shall not murder, right? That's what it's apparently about. But then Jesus jumps straight to things like anger and insults. You've heard this, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judge. You. There you go, that's it. No, it's not it. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, a judicial proceeding of some sort. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, the Gehenna of fire. Wow. Things just got serious, didn't they? (laughs) I've never murdered. How many murderers we got in here? I bet we've insulted people. We usually feel justified when we insult people. They cut us off in traffic. They've got stupid views. They're really annoying on Facebook. They embarrassed me, whatever. He doesn't really qualify it. He just says anger with a brother, an insult to a brother is somehow related to murder. And we see these things as relatively small flaws. In fact, your version may have the word raka for insults. Whoever says to his brother, raka, or raka, I think. I can't remember where the accent is, Matt. doesn't matter. Um, That's a, a... a relatively, it was a very common and relatively mild epithet, you know, cut down. It's, it's like empty head or fool, stupid. He's not talking here about somebody just like dressing somebody down with three pages of just, you know, vitriol. He's just talking about, you know, it's stupid. It's a relatively mild thing. And yet he says, we're liable for the hellfire. Wow. We certainly wouldn't think of anger or calling somebody stupid, dumbhead, as worthy of a judicial sentence or of eternal hellfire. I don't think most of us would. But Jesus is cutting to the chase. He's going straight to the heart of the matter. Because when it comes to interpersonal conflict, the heart of the matter is the heart. That's where it starts. And that's why the Bible several times equates murder with hatred. If you you hate, you're kind of committing murder, in a sense. You're assassinating somebody's character. Maybe not their, you know, snuffing out their total life, but it's it's, it's different in degree, not in type. That's where that starts, in that kind of heart. And that kind of interior place let me share with you a quote here from rt francis commentary on matthew where he talks about this he says this the principle of verse 22 is that the actual committing of murder is only the outward manifestation of an inward attitude which is itself culpable we're guilty for having the attitude way before we talk about punching somebody right it's culpable the heart condition is culpable Angry thoughts and contemptuous words deserve equal judgment. Indeed, the hellfire with which the saying concludes goes far beyond the human death penalty, which the law envisions, envisions, envisaged, but adds a far-reaching new dimension by turning attention also to the motives and attitudes which underlie the act and which are not susceptible to judicial process. Nobody's going to ever notice, you know, was he angry? (laughs) Right, I'm going to prove he was angry. They can't reach that part of your interior self. No one can testify to the anger itself, only to its physical or verbal expression. And everyday insults of stupid and fool do not provide the matter for court proceedings. But in the words of 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks on the heart. And I love the way France puts this. And in his court, in in God's court, the heart's thoughts are no less culpable than the act itself. So the heart of the matter is the heart. Finally, what about responsibility? Whose responsibility is it to pursue reconciliation? Who should initiate? Is it the victim or the perpetrator who should extend the conciliatory hand? The one who felt the wrong or the one who dealt the wrong? I want you to notice that in our text, Jesus puts the onus on the one who has committed the offense, right? Did you notice that in this text? Matthew 5, 23 and 24 again. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. So here Jesus puts the burden of initiating reconciliation on the one who has committed the offense. But this isn't the only time Jesus addresses the problem of disciples being estranged from each other by an offense committed between them. Later in Matthew's gospel, in fact, we find Jesus again stressing that brothers and sisters must try to resolve their conflict, must try to regain this familial bond. And it's it's Matthew 18, 15 that we looked at a second ago, but I want you to focus now on what we have highlighted in red. here it's a reversal of the, um, or it's the other person who is held responsible. If your brother, to, to initiate, if your brother sins against you, so you're the offended now. You're the one who feels you were wronged. The other verse said that person is supposed to come to you. This one says you go and tell him the fault. Now, it could be that there's not really a fault. There's always that whole confusion thing. It's half the problem, usually. It's perspective. And we jump to conclusions and have the self-talk, these narratives in our head. That's a whole other matter. But certainly, initiating reconciliation can get that on the table, and you can maybe communicate better. Worst thing in the world is to let it fester and stew and just let those narratives take over. Because the devil will be all in that. Anybody with me? It is so hard to get self-talk out of your head sometimes. So hard. It, it, you, you know, you got to have prayer and fasting for that one. <laughs> You know, to use Jesus' words, you've got to meditate a lot and, and get different kinds of conversations going with people who see it the right way, or that's the default mode. It really is. And it'll eat you up. But here, here he says the other person um, is the one who's supposed to initiate. So um, the onus is on the one who's been offended. So what gives here? Well, the fact that Jesus would on one occasion tell the offender, to initiate reco- reconciliation and yet on another occasion tell the offended to do the same thing initiate reconciliation doesn't that suggest that unresolved conflict is so problematic to jesus that reconciliation is so critical that anyone involved in the conflict needs to get to work on it stat like now <laughs> don't even worship right go reconcile first whoever you are wronged wronger you know wrongy doesn't matter everybody should be so concerned about this and of course in the heat of the moment of, of an offense most folks i think you can probably relate to this most folks are obsessing on who's in the wrong right they're not really thinking about healing the relationship it's about vindicating themselves it's about showing that they're the innocent one and the other person's the perpetrator. And it becomes almost an idolatrous compulsion. How many of you, five minutes after you feel offended, go, you know what? Who cares about me? Let's, let's work on us. That'd be wonderful. Some, maybe some of y'all there. I am not. Um, I believe that should be where I am, but I've got a ways to go in that. In that. So we're, we're focused on you know, who did the wrong, who's, who's the offender, who's the offendee um and so on uh, one really unique thing and i want to close with this point one really special thing about jesus's teaching on conflict that makes it so unique in the world is that jesus views everyone not just oppressors he views everyone as a sinner do you hear me on this? Not just the person in power or who is doing the abuse, whatever kind it is. It's not just that person or that entity that is the sinner. Even the oppressed, even the victim is a sinner. Now, I want to be clear on this. Jesus certainly calls out oppressors he comes to the aid of the oppressed. Remember Mary's Magnificat? She understands the imminent birth of the Christ child that she's carrying to be doing that kind of thing, judging oppressors. This is her language from Luke 1:51. He has shown by giving me this Christ child that I'm carrying, he has shown strength with his arm, God has. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And in his programmatic statement of what his gospel is all about, when Jesus came back to his home synagogue in Nazareth and and gave that oration in Luke 4, he quotes from Isaiah 61 and maybe a little bit Isaiah 58, and basically said, I'm the anointed Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, the marginalized people who had no agency, no voice. They're just trampled on. They're invisible. They're fodder for the machine of Rome and uh, the Jewish aristocracy or whoever else. But he says, he sent me to proclaim liberty to these captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And one of the the problems that when Christianity has, in different periods of history, been kind of mainstream, like the dominant cultural expression, i.e. the American South now, much of American history actually, is it loses most of its prophetic edge and it forgets to talk about the tons of texts in the Bible where God is on the side of the oppressed. And if it's systemic, we should be addressing it. God did. If you got time afterwards and you haven't bought into that with all my sermons on this, we can talk. I would love to. I mean, we're called to go seek out the orphan and the widow's plight and, and to be their champion. Isaiah 1 talks about that. It's basic righteousness because that's who God is. So I don't want you to get the point here, but that's that's really not the point I'm making right now. That's my disclaimer to let you know. I understand. Jesus brings judgment on the oppressor. They're offending lots of people. They're sinning against lots of people. But all reformers say that. The most agnostic secular reform movement is going to say, hey, the oppressor should be you know, judged and held accountable for hurting the, 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 the marginalized person, the weak person, the poor person, the oppressee. Jesus doesn't stop there. While he addresses oppression, he calls both oppressor and oppress, and the oppressed. The victim, as well as the victimizer, a sinner in need of repentance. And that's really, really unique in the world of addressing conflict and bringing reform. So let's talk about that for a second. Jesus taught that all people were sinners in need of repentance. He says this in Luke 13. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood, Pilate, the Roman governor, the Roman procurator, had mingled with their sacrifices, some sort of like, you know, military action or mini-ethnic cleansing. I don't know what it was. Not good, though, right? Clearly, big time. This made evening news for months. And he, and he said to them, do you, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When Paul says in Romans 3.10, quoting the Old Testament, there is none righteous, no, not one. He doesn't just mean oppressors. He means even the oppressed are unrighteous. Victims are not exonerated from sin because they're victims. They're still sinners. That is really unique to say. And we're going to be talking about the dynamics involved in that over the next few weeks some as we apply it to different things. And I think that's going to be a big part of the solution. We, we start with that, that key statement from Jesus, which is so different from worldly reformers. Jesus does more. Here's what I'm saying. He does much more by teaching that all people are sinners in need of repentance, whether you're the one who committed the wrong or the one who was wrong. You both need to repent. You both are sinners. He does much more than the typical turning of the tables that worldly reformers bring to the problem of of oppression. You know, the once bottom-dwelling oppressed gain power finally, and now they're on top. And what do they do? They begin oppressing the former oppressor. And here we go down the spiral of vengeance all over again. And people are doing genocide and ethnic cleansing, feeling all the while they're in the right. Broken record is what that is. Look it up if you don't know that idiom, if you're under 35. Well, turntables got cool again, so maybe you do know what a broken record is. Uh, maybe they're not cool anymore that was like five minutes ago so but we just enter this classic mutually destructive cycle of vengeance that's not what jesus is doing here he calls out not just the sin of the offender but also the sin of the offended not necessarily in that particular offense of that interaction but in their many other sins not least listen to this Not least the sinful tendency that we all have toward the impulse of vengeance, which feeling offended can nurture deep within our hearts. It's a real risk when we're offended. That feeling of vengeance can take over. And you may not like that word. It may sound too strong. Whatever you want to supply there a word. But that becomes something that can define us and it can ultimately dehumanize the other person because we forget they're human they're just a bad person they're the bad people the bad politics the bad country and you dehumanize them tell you something the god who made them never dehumanizes them jesus hung on the cross while they were nailing him to it and said father forgive them I want to close with a quote from a man named Miroslav Volf. He is currently, I think, a professor at Yale, like a professor of faith and culture or something like that. Well, at least at last I heard. I don't know where he is now, but spent some time out in California for a while and all this. But he, he's like in his early 60s, I think. And he grew up in what was called Yugoslavia back in the days of the Cold War, You know, a communist state down in the Balkans. You know the Balkans? The Balkans that have been called the powder keg of Europe, that's where World War I started. There are Serbs and Croats and Bosniaks and Albanians and Macedonians. There's just lots and lots of ethnic groups. There is Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, a small little bit of Protestantism, a lot of Muslims. And then the state religion of Yugoslavia was atheism. They were a communist state. Miroslav Wolf grew up there. His dad was a Pentecostal preacher he was the marginalized of the marginalized. There were hardly any Protestants. There certainly weren't many Pentecostals. So in his little church of like, you know, 14 people or whatever it was, he's trying to go to school and hang out with these people. He's got to, when he's 20 something, go to compulsory military service in the Yugoslav military. And he was dressed down, called daily before this officer who found out he was a professing Christian of some sort and just annihilated him, humiliated him in front of everybody day after day after day. He was, like, traumatized by this. It shook up his faith. And then he went back there after his academic training when, I don't know how many of y'all, does anybody here, raise your hand if you're familiar with the, the conflict in Serbia and Bosnia in the 90s. Is that even in anybody's memory now? Wow, five people. I'm 100 years old. That's like five minutes ago to me. It's Bill Clinton was dealing with that all the time from here. Did you know that more people died? It, it was the biggest uh, uh, amount of bloodshed, the largest loss of lives in Europe since, since World War II. 150,000 people died in this. Almost all of it was ethnic, religious-related violence. Ethnic cleansing, genocide, mass rape. Old feuds that had been going on forever. Muslim, Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, all of those Atheist, Pentecostal. <laughs> Miroslav Wolf knows what he's talking about when the topic of conflict and reconciliation comes up. He's got a little more experience in that area than I do. So I want to share a quote from his book, which is one of the best books I've ever read. It's called Exclusion and Embrace. Um, Kind of tough sledding at times, but it's man, it's it's so good. I'm going to probably quote that several times in this series because he's just way ahead of most of us, I think, on taking seriously what the Bible says about these dynamics. Here's what he says. No doubt, Jesus kindled hope in the hearts of the oppressed and demanded radical change of the oppressors, as any social reformer would. Lots of verses where Jesus does that. Yet. Jesus called to repentance not simply the oppressors, but the victims of oppression themselves. It will not do, like biblically speaking, it will not do, won't work, to divide Jesus's listeners neatly into two groups and claim that for the oppressed, repentance means new hope, whereas for the oppressors, it means radical change. You get your act together. Now, these pristine people over here who got hurt, they don't have to do anything. That's not Jesus. If then he asked this question, why does the call to repentance include the oppressed? In addition to the oppressors, who are incomparably greater transgressors. Because the oppressed need not only material and psychological help, but release from the understandable but nonetheless inhumane hatred in which their hearts are held captive. Think of the bombs falling on the families in these little Sarajevo in these places. What are you going to teach your kid and tell your kid that's like learning how to talk with that going on all around you? There's a real seed that can possibly be planted in each human heart, and that is being held captive for the dehumanizing hatred of your oppressor. Victims, continuing, he says, victims need to repent of the fact that all too often they mimic the behavior of the oppressors. They let themselves be shaped in the mirror image of the enemy. If victims do not repent today, they will become perpetrators tomorrow who in their self-deceit will seek to exculpate, free themselves of guilt from their misdeeds on account of their own victimization. And I'll tell you something. He's talking about ethnic groups and political groups and military action and cultures and religion. You know, we're going to get to that later as we talk about people groups but I am 100% convinced that the, the dynamics he's talking about here apply every bit to an argument between you and your best friend or you and your wife or your husband or your child or a fellow church member. All of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. All of us need repentance and grace, whether we are the offender or the offended. And so if we've got outstanding conflict... Let's get to it. First, be reconciled. Thanks a lot.